If you do arrive at the destination, there is more than an idea there. There's an idea married to reality. There is something concrete about planting my feet. Awe and wonder often are found at the point of convergence between the physical things around us and our feelings and our thoughts. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This episode of In Good Faith is all about pilgrimages, and I'm glad to be here with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And with producer Austin Ball. Salutations. I learned about pilgrims in grade school. They have buckles on their shoes. (laughs) They wear all black. And occasionally they invite other people over for a feast. Yeah, there's turkey. (laughs) Yes. Thinking beyond what pilgrims were to me in fifth grade, this whole idea of a pilgrimage that there are important places to go to. I think a lot of these are about returning in Mm. some ways. What do you think, Austin? Yeah, going out and coming back are both thresholds through which humans come into contact with with the divine, I'd say. So we'll hear from Daisy Khan now about the Hajj, the obligatory Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. By the way, you can hear another discussion with Daisy about Muslim feminist activism in episode 138. And Austin, you put her in touch with us. I was watching a National Geographic documentary about the Hajj, and she was featured where she talked about the features of it and what it meant for adherence to Islam. So I wanted to investigate her background further and found out that she is doing all this wonderful work. And I was very excited that she responded to us and came on the podcast. And she also talks about the place of women on the Hajj Mm. and how... Essentially, if we didn't have women, we wouldn't have a Hajj, and why women need to be allowed to remain participating in the Hajj. And this is a pilgrimage that actually, and you know Austin from studying Middle Eastern history and Arabic, it's actually a command for those who are able to make it, that they do make this trip to Mecca. Yes, it's a, it's a very important aspect of Islamic practice. I did want to mention that an integral part of it is to walk between these hillocks, Safwa and Marwa, and that is in commemoration of a woman, Hagar, which she'll talk about. Well, let's start with Daisy, because this may be the world's most well-known pilgrimage. So the actual pillars of Islam are how do you glorify God? How do you love God? How do you become a practicing Muslim? Those are five, and the first one is just uttering the Shahada, what we call the declaration of the faith, that God is one, Muhammad is his messenger. He's not the only messenger, he just happens to be the messenger that we follow. The second is prayer, which is to pray five times a day to glorify God, to remember God in these pivotal cosmic clock moments, literally at dawn, then in the afternoon, then when the sun is waning, late afternoon, and then when the sun is going down, and then at twilight when it's night. So it's meant to connect you with the cosmic clock and for you to take that moment away from the hustle and bustle of society and remember God. Mm. Because remembering God is what is the main requirement of God is just remember me, don't forget me, I'm your Lord. So that's the second one. The third one, of course, is to give charity share as much as you can. So wealth distribution is already built into the community. So no one is going hungry or starving. Everybody is taking care of somebody else. The final one, Hajj, has to do with uh, Muslims once in their lifetime, if they can afford it and they're healthy, to go visit Mecca and Medina, which is the central place where Prophet Muhammad preached his message, and which are the two holiest sites in Islam. So this is done every year. It shifts because we are on a lunar calendar, so it's never the same time. Mm -hmm. But all corners of the world come together, and I think it's up to 3 million people go visit this. And it's a pilgrimage which lasts about 10 days. We go there, we glorify God, we circumambulate around this cubicle structure that we believe was built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. 
But also we, we believe that previously the original black stone came from the heavens. So the black stone is actually embedded in the Kaaba. So many people, when they go touch the black stone, it's as if they're touching something heavenly. It's a beautiful experience to be with a sea of people from all over the world who look very different than you. It's so dramatic, just a little bit of film footage I've, I've seen. To be one with that many people in a single purpose seems very moving. It is very moving. It's also the preview of what is going to be the final reckoning. In other words, um, we are told that when we are, when our day of accounting is done, God is going to unveil itself and we are going to be swooning and we are going to be succumbulating and going around and worshiping this God that we cannot imagine. It's also a preview of all people coming together. And this is why it's really important that the paradise or heaven is not relegated for just one faith. It's all faiths. All good people are going to be swooning and going around this throne of God. And so the Kaaba is like the throne of God, and we humans succumbulating is representative of the human human race or humankind. That's why it's a very spiritually moving experience for most people. And this is something you've got to do all year round, people can go make a mini pilgrimage called Umrah, which is almost like Hajj, but it doesn't count as Hajj because it's done outside of the of the required time. So I've gone there twice during this time. So I actually have not done my Hajj yet. But the Hajj is also one place which is very special for women because it doesn't discriminate against women. Women and men are in the same space, worshiping God together in many Muslim societies, women have been relegated outside of the sacred spaces because of what happens culturally over time. People just begin to think of religion in a certain way. So here in the Hajj, which at the time of the Prophet, there was no gender segregation and women and men are enjoying the same proximity to the sacred site. Around 2004 or five, I heard news that some Hajj officials had decided that they were going to push women out of the main sanctuary and they wouldn't pray alongside men. And I received a call from a woman who is the historian of of, uh, Mecca. She was shocked by this change, which would have gone against the precedent of the prophet. Uh, She called me and she said, what should we do? And I said, well, the only thing we can do is do a petition. We put a petition together overnight. We circulated it to all the women around the globe. We got 2000 signatures with comments on, you know, don't even dare doing this. There'll be a mutiny by women all <laughs> over the world. And and literally this was sent to the king at the time, who was King Abdullah. And he said, thank you. This is all we needed because the people who had recommended this were officials at the bottom of the totem pole. And the king just needed something, some sort of a pressure from external groups. And we were able to restore women's spaces back. The second time I went there, I looked at the Kaaba and I looked at all the women and I said to myself, thank God we made that little effort because now I wouldn't be in the central space here. I would have been somewhere in the back. Hmm. This is just a story that I wanted to share because sometimes these beautiful traditions that are so ancient are being rewritten and restated in, in contemporary times and they go against the very spirit of what our faith teaches, which is men and women are spiritual equals to one another. Well, Islam is not alone in having cultural elements and attitudes creep in along with the teachings (laughs) that were directly received. I'm wondering, because there are so many millions of adherents to Islam, everybody can't go. There are even quotas from countries. But what does that mean because of sheer numbers, someone is unable to make that pilgrimage. This is a real issue uh, because you have close to 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide. Mm. Only 3 million are allowed to go. Many people never do the Hajj. My grandmother could never do it, but sometimes people can do it on behalf of someone else. Mm. So if my mother couldn't go, she'll ask me, can you do it on my behalf? It's the intention. So I go with the intention of doing it for my mother. The other thing that is happening now more and more the Hajj officials are trying to get people to experience the Hajj. And I don't know if you can do a virtual Hajj, but uh, (laughs) they have these reality goggles that you can wear and literally go in and experience it during the time of 
of the Hajj season. So some people are experiencing that way. But I think God would understand that you couldn't go because you didn't meet the quota. You mentioned even at the beginning that if you can afford to go, you should go. It takes a lot of money and also it's a lot of stamina. Oftentimes you will see people in wheelchairs and they just can't walk because it's it's very strenuous. You have to walk up. You have to do a lot of walking and and go to different places and do different rites. So one of the rites, which is my all-time favorite, is the rite of Hagar. She has deep re- relevance even in the Bible. Her and mother of key- Ishmael. Exactly. And she's a key figure in Islam and the archetype of courage, conviction, and bravery. Because Abraham took her from Sarah and was instructed by God to leave her in this desolate valley. And she had like a bag of dates and some water. And as he was leaving, she was afraid because she was by herself. And she asked Abraham, are you really leaving us behind? He said, yes. She said, did God tell you to do that? And he says, yes. So she says, okay, if God told you to do that, then God will provide. But then the bag of dates and the water ran out and she got desperate and her son was want, wanted water and he was thirsty. So she was running between hillocks, desperately seeking water. And then God heard her plea and Angel Gabriel came, struck the ground and Zamzam water came out. Now this ironic, this is almost 4,000 years ago. This water is still running, mm. you know, and it's very different tasting water. And it's a natural spring water that gushed in into this little desert area. And, and it was her self-sacrifice where Mecca was created around the well, as you know, in a desert. If you have well water, that's the bloodline of the desert. Traders started coming and an entire town developed around a woman and her son. And so I call her the founder of Mecca. And so at the Hajj, what we do is we reenact that. So men and women walk between these two hillocks called Safa and Marwa, which she ran between these two hills looking for any person, any anybody that she could, the attention she could get. And so it was, it's her trust in God, her determination, bravery, and that today we have these two holy sites of Islam. Boy, what an experience to have personally amid thousands and thousands of other people, and yet this is this very personal memory. You know, what I was impressed with was how there's this necessity to sort of stand up and say, no, women belong on the Hajj, and I'm going to do something about it. And she got 2,000 women to sign, which when you think of the adherence to Islam is a very small number. That's a tiny, tiny number of people, right? But that was enough. She just needed a few women to stand up and say, no, this displeases me. And that was effective. And I'm going to carry that with me for a while. Mm. Something I found fascinating was how she related the circambulating of the Kaaba to a preview of what's to come on the last day. It reminds me that religious rituals both commemorate something from the past, but they also look forward to a future, Mm. Um, such as like the Eucharist or the sacrament where we're remembering the Lord and we're also looking forward to that sacramental wedding breakfast when he comes back and the elect will feast together. It's a demonstration that we belong in that day. And this should have been so obvious to me, but if someone had said, what's the Hajj? I would have thought, well, I know enough to say a little about this. <laughs> and then I listened to her. It's like, uh-uh, this was wonderful to hear about it. It's a reminder to ask the people involved and learn from them. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Daisy Khan mentioned that In some countries, they actually have to ration spots or tickets because so many of the millions would want to come to this. In the Middle Ages, there was a time when people who wanted to make their own pilgrimage, for instance, to Jerusalem and walk the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows, trace that final journey of Jesus to his crucifixion, they couldn't go there anymore. And so there's a pilgrimage invented by necessity, I think, that you can do where you live. And I loved speaking with Father Diaz at the Cathedral of the Madeline in Salt Lake City. They've had Stations of the Cross there forever, but they were redone not too many years ago in 
a way that really reflects the Southwestern culture and makes it personal to the people who take this little in-place pilgrimage. The original idea of the Stations of the Cross was for people to experience Jesus in his final days, in his final time coming from the Last Supper mm -hmm. to the crucifixion and then to the resurrection. And as you know that in the Holy Land, when the Islamic religion the, took over the Holy Land, Christians couldn't go from Europe to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to experience what they felt was Jesus and kind of be in those places. So in the Middle Ages, they developed what we, we call today the Stations of the Cross. And they are meant to be a pilgrimage, a walk with Jesus from the Last Supper into his death and resurrection. So since the people couldn't walk the way of sorrows, right. this was a way to do it? Right, and so many churches have stations of the cross on the inside. Some places, some churches will have stations outside mm -hmm. so that you can walk the path outside. And it's, a, you know, in a sense, a larger pilgrimage than from the few feet from one station to the other. It was St. Francis of Assisi back in the 1300s that made them most famous. What are the particular days when a congregation might go from station to station and have a commemoration so, or a service? There? So it's a particular devotion that's opened anytime, but particularly during the time of Lent, when we're preparing for Good Friday, mm -hmm. Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Those 40 days of Lent, here in the cathedral, as in many, many places, we celebrate the Stations of the Cross on the Fridays of Lent, because, uh, again, on Good Friday when, when Jesus died. Here at the cathedral, we celebrate in English first, and then in Spanish second. So it's a popular devotion across the board. Mm. The Stations of the Cross here in the cathedral are a little different than the Stations of the Cross in the time of St. Francis. Mm -hmm. Our stations are based on the scriptures and come out of what's in the Bible. The original Stations of the Cross, seven of the 14 are traditional, but not specifically listed right. in the scriptures. For example, in uh, the traditional Stations of the Cross, Jesus meets his mother, but th that's not in the Bible, except at the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus speaks with John and with his mother. So the, the, the tradition of meeting his mother along the way is that, of course she was there. Where right. else would she be? Yes, yes. <laughs> and so a tradition builds up and so that part of his walk of sorrow, that Via Dolorosa, that walk of sorrow to death, would have been to encounter his mother who was with him from the beginning, you know, as one of the first disciples. And of course, she would be there. And so that's how traditions build up. It's not in the Bible, but it makes sense. So our stations are made in a way that the figures are from the Southwest. So the artist picked Aztec facial features for Jesus and the other figures. These it, are the it, sleeping it, disciples that were with yes, him and so the, Yes, so you have the, the three who are sleeping there and Jesus, and Jesus looks very indigenous. And you'll see in, in the station, sometimes there'll be contemporary figures. And one of the stations has one of the sisters of the Missionaries of Charity, the Mother Teresa's group, mm. which would be a modern group. Another station has animals from the Southwest. Artwork in the cathedral is meant to reflect that we are in the Southwest, that this is where we are. Like I like to point out that when we showed the Jesus as the Good Shepherd, that picture has on the bottom of it an arch so there's Jesus in Arches, Utah. So it's meant that this cathedral can only be here in the Southwest. It would make no sense to have it in Massachusetts or North Dakota right. because the Southwest would not make sense to them. Yet we bring in the tradition of the universal church and we start with Jesus in the Garden of Olives. In the week of Lent, if there's a procession or if there are prayers made here, are there particular things that people would think of or say? When we say the prayers, we 
name the station, mm -hmm. and then um, we do a, we adore you, O Christ, and, and we praise you because by your holy cross, you have redeemed the world, and each one starts that way. Then there's a short scripture passage that we read that reminds us of Jesus mm. in the garden. Then we say, I think we say the hail our father and move to the next one. It takes about half an hour, 45 minutes. So each station is about three or four minutes. There's a traditional song that we sing of Mary at the foot of the cross. What does it come to mean to people to be able to observe and, and walk through these stations? It's a, a reminder of what Jesus did and that Jesus tells us in the scriptures in the Bible, come follow me, take up your cross mm. and follow me. Now it's not take up Jesus's cross, of course, it's take up your own cross. But I think as people pray the stations of the cross, in many ways what they do is offer their own concerns, pains, sufferings. Yeah. I think people are bringing people that they know who are ill other concerns that they have in family life, bring the world at war before the Lord, and offering these petitions, these prayers, back to the Lord for healing, for mm. peace, for compassion, understanding, and to enter into a relationship, a deeper relationship with the Lord. And I think that's what any kind of a, a pilgrimage is meant to be reflective as you walk on a pilgrimage, as you move from station to station, whether it's a few feet or a few miles, mm. as you walk from place to place, it's that self-reflection. What needs to be changed in my life? What's preventing me from entering into a relationship with Jesus? What's preventing me from drawing closer to the Lord? What's my own sinfulness? If Jesus died on the cross and he did for our own sins, then what are my sins that are causing it? And what do I need to let go of? And what do I need to do to let go of what I'm holding on to? All of us have those things that we're more comfortable doing them than not. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a vice is a, it's just a bad habit that we get into. And so what do I need to do? And I think the the sense of walking with the Lord and, and taking time to pray. You know, in other words, I've got a very busy life. There's a lot of things going on, but I'm gonna spend those half an hour, 40 minutes in quiet prayer, just getting away. Part of a pilgrimage hmm. has a beginning and an end. So when you come to the end, then it's time to go back to life. It's like, okay, I've taken that time away. I've reflected. Now I need to go back. Um, so it's, it is a spiritual journey, not yes, only physically, yes. but spiritually. Yes, it's meant to really, to open your heart to what's going on in your life. Let God touch you. Mm. And God is gonna touch each person in a different way, because we're all just different. And so each station then can bring something different. And, and for one person it's this, and for the next person it's that. So it's not every person, every time, every station. But walking with Jesus, we remember the things that happened to him, and then hopefully in our own lives are able to be converted, be changed. The beginning of Christianity is those three days. Last Supper, death on the cross, risen from the dead. And that's where Christianity began. That's part of when we walk the way of the cross, we begin again, it's kind of being born again again. When we do a pilgrimage, when we walk with Jesus, we are trying to renew those fires, renew that commitment, and, and just recognize how much closer we are to Christ and how much we have ways to go, I mean, obviously, but also the good things that we do and to do, to do more of them. I loved speaking with Father Diaz, not just to speak with him, but to be in the place we got to walk around and go through the Stations of the Cross. We had to pick just a few to share because of time constraints, but I was picturing that he would say, this is this moment, which is important in Scripture because, and he did do some of that, but I loved the personal application he gave to the parishioners as they process within the cathedral from spot to spot where these are on the walls. And 
I didn't know about that personal application possibility. It was very meaningful to me. I loved that. I got to actually go to the Cathedral of the Madeline and participate in the Stations of the Cross a couple years ago now. And I hadn't noticed that the icons actually are reflective of the American Southwest, which I thought was very interesting. I loved his note that the universal church will always bear the vestments of whatever culture it enters. Next, we're going to hear from Rachel Rukert, who's just published East Winds, a memoir of when she and her husband, they get married, and then they go for a year on a honeymoon. And I think a lot of us would say that doesn't sound so bad, but theirs is pretty interesting (laughs) because they go to South America and then they go to Asia and then they decide to do the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrimage for Catholics that begins in France and charts 500 miles to the Cathedral of St. James in Santiago, Spain. Almost as an afterthought, this wasn't on their original plan. They certainly didn't have the shoes for it, as we'll hear. (laughs) And so we're going to listen to Rachel talk, not necessarily about the honeymoon aspects of this Camino, which are important to her, and you should read the memoir, but really about how she formed what she calls Camino families. I was totally unprepared. I was... Physically, the most training I'd done was taking the stairs instead of the elevator for a few weeks in India <laughs> in, in our apartment there. Mentally, I, yeah, it just, oh, what a fun walk. You know, I really hadn't done the spiritual or the physical or the mental preparation. And so I just showed up in, in these sandals and thought, okay, I'm going to cross the Pyrenees today. I'm young. You know, yeah, I got it handed to me. There were several times I had several panic attacks. At one point, I slipped and almost kind of fell off a cliff. I mean, it was really dramatic, and there there was no way out. There was no way out. Uh, the quickest way out was forward, and that was my only choice at that point. So as you're a day or two into this, you're starting to realize this is not what I thought it would be, but you also are looking at how many weeks still to go. Yeah. There's almost like a miracle drug that happens with sleep. It was just, you know, each day it's like, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then you go to sleep and you wake up and you just kind of do it again. And you find some good friends and companions who help talk to you. And then you kind of forget how much your feet hurt. You kind of forget the blisters. You kind of laugh about it. You've got these amazing stories. What I learned to do was just kind of take it in those bite sizes, as cliche as that is. I couldn't think about Santiago 500 miles away. Yeah. I had to think about what is the next village tomorrow? How many kilometers today? Just eat, sleep take care of your feet, next day, do it again. Did it feel like that was your whole life? There was no life before or after you were just in that? It just demanded so much presence. It it really did feel very sacred in that way. And there's really no energy or time to to do much else and just be present and, and to attend to your body, to attend to the people around you, to the long versions of stories of these people around you. You know, it can't be like, oh, so nice talking to you. I need to run to X or see you at Y, mm-hmm. you know. You're going to be walking with these people and see them every day on and off for a month. And so um, you strip away those pretenses in a way that I needed to do for myself, too. And I love sort of this changing cast of characters that sometimes you pass somebody and then you're tired and they pass you. Or then certain ones you sort of end up traveling together. Yeah, you definitely form, or at least my experience was, you know, forming these clusters of, we called them Camino families. You spend enough time with these people, you talk to someone for eight hours a day, you're going to get really close really fast. There was always people coming and going, but there were certain people who I'm still in contact with. I just sent a baby gift to one. I, I go and visit Nashville for another friend. It's such a unique experience, and to share it with people, particularly the hardship, the way that hardship and also kind of that sacred experience of just witnessing each other. I'm thinking specifically of a man named Martin, and I'm actually feeling like a little teary thinking about it. Martin was a police officer from Germany, and he he never told us really why he was walking, but there was something very difficult in his life and his family. He always kind of kept to himself we did kind of tease him. He liked to have bags labeled in three different languages. Like all of his gear was labeled in English, German, and <laughs> Spanish. We don't know why, but we tease him for that. And he would always make sure he got to the albergue, the hostels, like early to make sure there was enough beds for everyone. Like this was just his character. And he was there for religious reasons. He was a devout Catholic. And I remember the morning when we got to Cruz de Ferro, he was the first one up. And I have no idea what he said. I have no idea what he felt. But just seeing him kneeling 
at the base of that cross on top of all of these rocks and all those burdens that they represented. With a sliver of moon above him, there was just something so chillingly beautiful and moving and sacred about witnessing that. There was there was one point, we, we've talked about how people have different bad days. There yeah, was a woman yeah. named Sheila who had, had thrown up and was just on the side of the road and so we get to the destination and she's not there and we all realize she's not there. We're all worried about her. But it was Martin who, he was at the albergue first and he sprinted back. It was a 30-kilometer day and he ran back, didn't saunter back, didn't walk back and, and just seeing the dust in his wake um, to make sure she got there. You know, there was... To me, that that was just like the best in humanity that can come out through this experience on full display. And interesting that you talk about him as a person who seemed to be carrying a lot of burdens. Absolutely. He was just in agony over something invisible. And the that, compassion yeah. that he had, maybe because of that, for someone else. He really took care of his Camino family, we'll keep calling it. And I hope he took care of him in ways, too. The shared hardship is a sacred thing. Yeah, Really, it's bearing each other's burdens in a way. It is. So you're with people, many of whom are doing this, some as an adventure, some as a curiosity, some as a really deep, almost a penance or, mm-hmm. or sort of a, to find a resolution with something. Yeah, conscious or not, yeah. You're with people who, a lot of them are doing this motivated by faith. Did you have that same experience with your own faith or relationship to God? It's a good question. I think at the beginning, I didn't know how spiritual it would be in that sense. And it wasn't until I I got to, you know, certain moments, whether it's like witnessing someone's story Mm. or watching them suffer and, you know, break down in tears. You know, there's just a sacredness in observing that. Not even just the hard things, the beautiful things, like what it felt like to sit next to strangers at a a dinner table and not have it feel awkward. Mm. I could never do that here at home, you know, so... Just that felt very sacred to me, and I think just the chance to have the space to step away from the day-to-day grind and do a different kind of grind, but, you know, it is a, it is a soul kind of grind. And so I think it gave me a, a much deeper appreciation for my own life and also the various lives of other people on this planet. So this whole idea of pilgrimage, I mean, that a place is so important or that something will happen if I go there. You could also say, it's just a place. yeah. Do you bring meaning to it? Or or is the place meaningful because of all the people who put their own sense of importance on it? That's such a good question. I think for me, there is something magical about travel. And and with this pilgrimage, there's something magic about seeing something new and different and the physical exertion of walking. I I do my best thinking and, and talking probably while walking. And so this... This combination for me, knowing the history and the layers of this particular pilgrimage and the roots of it, I wasn't walking for penance like people did, mm. you know, however thousands of years ago. The villages and the infrastructure and just that history, I really do think, is imbued in that. And it's imbued in the buildings and in the language. And I think that history matters. I don't think it could just be swapped out for any other mm. place and go for a really, really, really long walk. <laughs> as fun as that would be. So if you'd had the rest of the journey, everything from India to South America, places in Europe, but not had the Camino, would you have come home the same person that you came home after that pilgrimage experience? Oh, that just made me terrified. Absolutely not. I, I can't imagine. For me, the Camino and the pilgrimage was where I started to realize that my personal neuroses and anxieties were part of a larger human experience and not just my own individual things that kept me up at night. And I started to, instead of asking, like, why am I so afraid of marriage or why am I so unhappy in this moment? You know, I can instead ask, what is my relationship to suffering? What is my relationship to failure? What am I really afraid of? I had time to really investigate that. So that idea of what if I fail at this or that, is that connected with your understanding of God and the change of how you felt about that? Did that change your relationship with God? I think in in a few senses. I think first, given some of the difficulties from my past, I had wrongly assumed that 
to have any kind of meaning in life, it had to be really hard. And that somehow the value of my life was measured by how many things I'd overcome. Mm. To have a chance to realize that that has its its limits. Life is just hard. <laughs> you know, it, it also doesn't have to be harder. You know, thinking about that first day in the Pyrenees, I could have had clothes that were not jeans. I could have had shoes. I could have had socks. <laughs> I could have known that there might be snow, mm-hmm. you know, and that wouldn't have been the worst thing. It still would have been, quote unquote, meaningful. That is connected to this idea of God that I had maybe of just, you know, is my life meaning? Am I good if I haven't really gone through the ringer? <laughs> and so God is a lot more open and gracious than that. I think God is in the, you know, the presence of the people from all over the world that I got to meet and seeing how flimsy the borders between countries and languages really can be. Was some of that fear, I will fail God or I will not succeed and he will be unhappy or... I think it does in this sense, this psychological connection to God in this experience is very much, am I good enough? Am I a good person? Am I a worthy person? Which I think is about kind of accepting God's grace or or even grace for myself and holding that. And so I think it gave me a larger perspective on myself in that way. And it it wasn't so cruel in a way. (laughs) (laughs) So Um, so the very first day, you write this phrase, which you're going to hear a lot throughout this pilgrimage, which was, buen camino. Talk to me about that. my, My sense of what the word means is just recognizing in passing someone, this this unique, distinct humanity that that person has, their own complex journey. And mm. and to salute people in that way, it was just a beautiful greeting and goodbye to say, I see you, I see your journey, I see that it's different than mine, I wish you well, I hope I see you again. Maybe I won't, but I'm I'm wishing you well. And it's just so full of grace and beauty to me. Blessed are you, pilgrim, because you have discovered that the authentic Camino begins when it is completed. True? Not true? Still true. Every day true. You know, every, you know I, I, I think it's a little naive to just to think like, oh, I went on a really awesome trip and now I'm changed forever. You know, there, there's some limits to that story, but it can if you let it continue to change you. And so mm. I think I... I I remember that I was once a person who had a single backpack and one writing notebook who could sit with strangers at a table, who could have those long conversations with people without pretense and and love them and and reckon with things and and to just have that minimal physical experience, but also mentally. You know, what really matters? What do I really want? And for me, I really got to a place where I could make a goal for myself of I don't want to compromise my own happiness. Can I be quote-unquote successful and happy? And I get to ask myself that all the time, even now, eight years later. That was Rachel Rueckert talking about a section of her book, East Winds, where she goes on the Camino de Santiago, which is this weeks-long hike where you're crossing, you heard, you cross the mountain (laughs) the first day you're in the Pyrenees. Right. This was like the perfect illustration of the well-worn adage that it's the journey as much as the destination. So I started thinking of pilgrimage that way, not just, oh, we're going to go to Mecca for the Hajj. Oh, we're going to the Stations of the Cross. This is this huge physical effort, 500 miles. That's the pilgrimage to me was what's happening in their minds and in the different places they stop. And I love that this family, they assemble of of people who they had never met from different religious backgrounds. They weren't even all Catholic. I love that it was the journey that taught her about herself. And I love just that story of Martin. And I think to myself, how often in our daily journeys are we willing to just drop everything and run to aid Mm. those around us? I thought it was a beautiful story. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. There's another kind of pilgrimage, which is maybe you go someplace that people like to go because your family lived there, like 
When I go back to Indiana, I go to Bloomington and I drive down University Avenue and see the cute little craftsman house that as a kid I didn't know was cool. It was just, you know, <laughs> had a nice big porch where we could fight, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my brothers and I. So, But that's a little pilgrimage. I have to stop, and as I w- get out of the car, I'm expecting to smell honeysuckles and— So, a personal pilgrimage. So, we talked with Marcus Smith, who is the host and executive producer of the podcast Constant Wonder on BYU Radio. Marcus talks to us about sort of a pilgrimage within a pilgrimage he made on a visit to Nauvoo, Illinois, a small town on the Mississippi River where Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is buried along with several family members. I have ancestry among the Mormon pioneers, and that story goes back to the Mississippi River and the city of Nauvoo, uh, the city of Joseph, Joseph Smith, the prophet. And right across from Keokuk, if you want to place it on a map. On a map. You been. <laughs> if you know where Keokuk is. I'm not a conformist who likes to do the same pilgrimages that other people do just because they're doing them. It's not necessarily a draw to me because a tour guide might be able to take me there and say, oh, you don't want to miss out on the grave sites of, say, Joseph Hiram Emma Smith. But I went there anyway, and it was surprisingly empty that time of year. I was the only person standing there. I remember the river was very low that season, so much so that that lily pads were up on their stalks like two feet above the surface of the water, and they were shriveled and drying. But I had the river to my back, and I was looking towards the bluff where the temple used to stand and close to where the grave sites were there. And it wasn't the kind of experience where I would say I felt any kind of deep religious devotion. And yet the whole experience was imbued with personal meaning for me because I knew I had this heritage among the people who were called Mormons. I knew I had ancestors who had lived there. I knew that they were converts to the faith that I had inherited and which I practice. And I knew that it all could be traced back to some very significant individuals, no relation to me, even though my last name is Smith, uh, Joseph Smith and his people. And to be at the grave left me with a sense of my indebtedness, you could call it, or legacy or the influence that he had, that my life in very large measure had been shaped by his life. And with intervening decades between his death and my birth, it didn't matter that there was this distance between us. It was a closing of a gap, I Mm. think I would say. And so that was a significant sort of pilgrimage that you might predict for somebody like me within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to go to a historic venue and to have, you know, some kind of a sense of belonging to that that history. Right. Inside of that pilgrimage, I, I had another pilgrimage, which was to go to the site where my third great-grandmother once lived in Nauvoo. A lot of people might do this who have heritage from that city. They might want to trace their ancestry and go there, right? Been there, done that. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, the fact that I knew her story so well, but few other people did, really did make it kind of a private pilgrimage. And who is she? Well, her name was Anne Hewlings Pitchforth. She had been married to a man named Solomon Pitchforth. I have a son named Solomon, by the way. She had learned to play the piano in her childhood and the harp, had been trained by German musicians who had come to uh, the March countries of the UK, so the border between England and Wales, where she she lived. Her father was a, a man of considerable means, and she had her own grand piano that was given to her at the age of eight, whatever a grand piano looked like in the early 1800s. It's not the <laughs> instrument we know of today. Uh, but she was competent as a musician, and when she first encountered Mormon missionaries, she was living with her husband on the Isle of Man, and they were running some sort of a tavern-slash-hotel, and cottage meetings, little, little religious gatherings were held there by the missionary by the name of John Taylor. So she is very sympathetic towards the faith and eventually is baptized, and it tears the marriage apart, and she leaves and, and goes back to her father, and eventually the father funds her trip to uh, Nauvoo to join with the body of the Latter-day Saints. And as a musician, uh, her family always said that she had set 
to music the hymn text, The Spirit of God Like a Fire is Burning, which is something of an anthem for the Latter-day Saints. And she demurred and said, I, I really just found an old tune. But she was a musician. She was the only piano teacher in the city of Nauvoo. And yeah. So I have this legacy of she joins the faith to which I adhere. She is a musician and, and writes hymns. I write hymns. I look to her as, as sort of a, a seminal figure in setting me up for my own life. Mm. And I kind of think poetically sometimes. And I, I fancy that if I were to meet her one day, that we would get along. I don't know that that's the case. You don't know that with any distant ancestor or ancestress. But I fancy that we would have things to talk about, that we would consider the things that are connected with what is good and true and beautiful because she seemed to be that type. She wrote enough, and we have some correspondence of hers, and so I can kind of get into her mind a little bit by the things she said and the things she wrote. She was a believer. She wrote, and one of her letters was published, she writes that she knew that she had joined the right faith in her mind because she found in Nauvoo a gathering of people, in her words, that there was universal love and kindness among them. She spoke of how nobody locked their doors, how they were unified mm. in the body of Christ. Yeah, these things matter to me. The music, the beauty, the search, the seeking, her trek— she dies in Iowa in, a, in the cold of winter, never makes it to Salt Lake City, the, which was where the Mormon exodus was headed. So it's a tragic story in terms of her untimely demise. I know enough about this person. Potentially, I carry some of her DNA. There is attrition, you know, over the generations, but I feel a connection. And so that pilgrimage was something that was important to me. Connection is a word that we play fast and loose with. And if I were to tease out of that word what matters for me— is that we have stories that we inherit from our parents and our communities and our teachers. And it's all quite abstract unless there's something tangible. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and, and the point of a pilgrimage is the physicality of the thing, where it takes effort and your body moves through time and space to reach a destination or at least to be moving toward a destination. There are many pilgrimages that don't reach their end goal. You know, If you do arrive at the destination, there is more than an idea there. There's an idea married to reality. There is something concrete about planting my feet or, or maybe, you know, some, some people will want to touch the stone of the cathedral. They'll want to touch the well. They'll want to walk the Via Dolorosa. They'll want to be in physical contact with something that they have imbued with great meaning. Awe and wonder often are found at the point of convergence between the physical things around us and our feelings and our thoughts. So was it standing there an intellectual closing of a circle? It wasn't about coming to conclusions. It was about a reverential stance towards something that I might not ever really be able to wrap my, my head around. I mean, the pilgrimage does not tell me exactly who this person was and pitch forth. So there's nothing conclusive for me in that pilgrimage. Instead, it becomes a rite. It becomes a, an observance. It becomes a devotion where my very stance of being there is to try to approach the sacred, a sacred event, a sacred person, a sacred place, and to fully apprehend what my presence in that place might do for me in humbling me and putting me in the best possible spiritual context to know that I am right before God in my heart, in my desires. But you can't live there in that field. What do you take with you? That's a very good question, and I don't know the right answer for that, if there is a right answer. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a risk in dichotomizing between what is sort of spiritual or temporal, you know, what is here or there, what is this world or the next world? But there is a way of living where you do want to live your best. And that might mean seeing holiness where other people see a broken world, a fallen world. When I wake in the morning, all my relationships, all my experience has holy potential. And then it's incumbent upon me to see if I am willing to see it or feel it or hear it. I hear a call to see the holy in places that 
are not necessarily the most obvious places. I mean, this is the Christmas story of the nativity, right? Who is this babe in swaddling bands with a donkey nearby and, and, and no real roof overhead? Who is he that, that we should admire in any way, shape, or form? Something so insignificant as this refugee. We should turn our eyes toward the most improbable sources, I think, of holiness. Marcus Smith with an invented personal pilgrimage. That got me thinking about where in my world, maybe even in my neighborhood or someplace far away, is there a place that could be a pilgrimage? And is it made holy because it feels that way to me? Is that all it requires? I love that. I don't think that holiness or the sacred are constrained to the specific places that an institutional religion or a culture may assign to them. We are called to see holiness everywhere, like Marcus talks about even in places that are unexpected. And that's something we can do through cleansing the doors of our perception, mm. as it were. When I guide groups to Israel, I know people have expectations. I will be filled with the Spirit when I am at the Jordan River, when I'm at the Garden Tomb, whatever it might be. And I always tell people to, that's fine, but be open to the unexpected because you may go that place and think, oh, that wasn't what I had in mind. But you might be totally just gobsmacked by some unexpected place. That's happened to me. And I thought, what am I experiencing? What am I feeling that I absolutely had no idea was going to be here? I love that being open to the wonder, not just in I should be required to feel this, feel this certain way at this holy place. I really liked this whole episode listening to these people and thinking about where are the sacred spaces in my life and am I, am I going back and visiting them enough? And maybe I need to do that a little bit more. So special thanks to Daisy Kahn, to Father Diaz, to Rachel Ruckert, and to Marcus Smith. I love getting to know each of their different aspects about what a pilgrimage can be. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. Thanks to our production team, Austin Ball, Leah King, and Katerina Martinick. Our sound designers include Sam Clausen, Daniel Phillips, and Brandon Lewis. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And... If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and our Facebook page and Instagram is InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio.